Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Verses 7 through 9. And 15 through 25. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Ben. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I um, would love to meet you before you leave today. Um, as Dan said, we are continuing our series in the book of Genesis. We have spent the last couple of weeks in Genesis chapter 1. We could have spent months in Genesis chapter 1. Today we pick up in chapter 2, which is a kind of a zoom-in view of uh, the day when God creates man and woman. And we're going to see in this chapter, chapter 2, a lot of things about the way that God creates uh, designed the world that he made, and I won't be able to cover all of the things that are in this chapter, just so you know, but hopefully, if nothing else, you'll leave here today uh, hungry to dig into Genesis more for yourself, to dig into God's Word for yourself, and to get to know uh, God through His Word. Um, so before we go any further, let me pray for us again. Father in heaven, we, uh, we open up your word now. We, um, we want to hear from you, and I, I thank you for every individual here. God, I trust that you have prepared every person, um, that you plan on speaking and bringing correction and encouragement 
teaching and revealing things uh, to us by your Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that you would be with me and help me to say what is true and um, nothing that is false. God, give us ears to hear today and hearts that are eager uh, to live according to your design in the world. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So as I was studying this passage, uh, one commentator, Walter Brueggemann, summarized this passage by saying this. He said that this passage shows us that the destiny of the human creature is to live in God's world, not a world of his or her own making. And then he goes on to say we must live in God's world on God's terms. We must live in God's world on his terms. And I think that's a great summary of this chapter. This chapter is giving us a picture of God's design for humanity, for human flourishing. Um, And that doesn't mean, living in God's world on his terms doesn't mean uh, joyless servitude. When we live in this world according to God's design, it leads to our joy and our flourishing. The world that God created was and still is good. I want you to hear that. I know that it's broken, and I know that uh, our sin has wreaked havoc in this world. But the world that God created is good, very good. In Genesis chapter 1, that last verse, right before we get to Genesis chapter 2, says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. All of God's world is very good. But in order to experience its goodness, we must learn to operate within his design. We must learn to live in his world, on his terms. The New City Catechism, I think, has a fantastic definition for sin. And here's the way that it answers the question, what is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. I love that definition because I think it gets more to the root of our sin. We might think of that part of it that says that it's not being or doing what he requires in his law, but I believe that this is right in getting at the point that sin begins with us rejecting or ignoring God in his world. We see the audacity of it when we put it that way that we would ignore the one that made us and the one that made the world we're living in? And that's a good definition of sin. Um, Sin is choosing to live in God's world on our terms. And we've all seen the way that this does result in uh, the disintegration of our world, Not not just people out there, not just of culture, not just society in general, but in our own lives. We have seen the way that sin has disintegrated our souls. 
Um, John Bloom, who's the co-founder of Desiring God Ministries, commenting on this passage says, everything God creates is good, but we must take this in large measure on faith because under the curse of the fall, our fallen perceptions often don't see it. And our fallen natures often don't believe it. We are disordered and pathologically self-centered. We are out of sync. It's so true. When I think about my own life, I see this proclivity toward self-centeredness always there, always pulling me back to focus on me. Because of sin, we've all experienced the carnage created by our disordered and disintegrated souls. And apart from Christ, we are certainly out of sync with God's well-designed world. And so this morning, I just want to take the rest of our time to pull a few of the things, and there are many others that we're not going to have time for this morning, but a few of the things that we can glean from this passage about God's design for human flourishing. Point number one is that God designed us to live with Him. He designed us to live with Him. And look at verse 8. It says, And God, uh, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. As we read on in the story, what we find is that this garden in Eden is a place where God dwells. We find out later on that, that God is actually... Um, walking in the garden with them in the cool of the day. We find out that God is speaking with them and giving them instructions and boundaries and He's teaching them. God was with them. This is a place, Eden was a place where heaven and earth overlapped. Um, when you continue reading the story and you get to the end of the book, not just the book of Genesis, but the end of the Bible in Revelation, what you find is that in the restoration of all things, heaven is coming down to earth. And once again, heaven and earth will overlap. And we will live with God in the presence of God. He will walk this earth again. Uh, Randy Alcorn, in his book on heaven, says that God designed us for a person, that person is Jesus, and he also designed us for a place, and that place is heaven, and sin has separated us from both. Um, maybe if you've grown up in the church, you've been around the church for a little while, you've heard about the fact that sin has separated us from a relationship with God. Uh, but maybe you haven't thought much about the fact that our sin has separated us from our home. Sin separated us from living with God in paradise. And um, much of what we long for is to get back to that place, to get back to Eden, to get back to the place where God walks among us and He is living with us. Um, C.S. Lewis famously said, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. 
Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it, stitch by stitch as a glove is made for a hand. Perhaps you haven't given much thought to the fact that the deep longings that you often feel as you try to find paradise on earth are actually at root a longing for your real home. C.S. Lewis also said that there's a shadow of memory of this place still stamped upon human hearts, and we still search for it in all of our futile attempts to find and experience heaven on earth. On this side of the fall, those longings are meant to point you toward the coming kingdom. Jesus said this in John 14, 2 through 3, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. God made us to live with him in heaven. And until that day, you and I are going to feel um, dissatisfied to a degree. Now, as a Christian, you, have, you can have and do have relationship with God restored, right? We have been restored, reunited with our Creator. But there is supposed to be always, and we see this all throughout New Testament teachings, a longing for the kingdom of heaven to come here. A, a, a deep longing that Christ would return and set up his kingdom on earth once and for all. And until that time, we're not to get too attached to this world. We're supposed to live in this world knowing that this is not forever. This isn't our ultimate home. That there's something better coming. And that, is, that gives us a perspective that, yes, this world has many good gifts, but this isn't forever. This isn't heaven. And it won't be until Christ returns. If we're to live according to God's good design for humanity, then we must not forget that we were made to live with God. And so as Abraham lived, so must we looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, Hebrews 11.10. Now, having said that, does that mean that we're supposed to hate everything about this world since we know it's passing away one day? Is it wrong to enjoy banana pudding <laughs> and sledding and coffee and sports? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that brings me to my second point, and that is that he gives us everything good to enjoy. He gives us everything good to enjoy. Look at Genesis 1:29. It says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And then flip over to chapter 2, verse 9. The beginning of that verse says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Notice that God is the provider for Adam and Eve, and he wants them to know it. I have given you every plant yielding seed. 
as they go around picking sweet fruit from the beautiful trees and berries from the various bushes and maybe vegetables from the ground. I don't know if those are a result of the fall or not. (laughs) He does not want them to forget that he provided them with all of the food that they enjoy so that their taste buds could dance and so that their stomachs could be satisfied. All of these good gifts came from a kind and generous God, and they're to receive everything with gratitude. And this is a very important condition to living in God's world on God's terms. Because as we're going to see later in the story, the moment that what God had given them was not enough, was not appreciated, and they began to crave the fruit from the one tree that God had not given to them, they turned away from God. Covetousness, which sprang from a discontentment with what God had richly provided for them, was at the bottom of their rebellion against God. You see that? The way that Paul writes it in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, is for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The first step to living in God's world on His terms is to thank Him for all that He's done for you and all that He's given you. This is so crucial. Um, This recognition that every good thing you have comes from Him. Because I think living in the wealthiest nation in the world and in a time when we have more than any generation before us has ever had, I think we have a tendency to forget where it comes from. I think we have a tendency to feel entitled and to think we deserve this or to think that we earned it. But it's God who's given us every good thing to enjoy and to live according to His design, to live in His world on His terms requires that we are aware of this constantly and grateful. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? It's a great question. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? God has given you everything, and He means for you to enjoy the good gifts that He gives you. If you gave someone a gift, and they put that gift in a drawer and hid it away and said, it's okay, I want to honor you, and I have a relationship with you, and that is enough for me, you would probably respond by saying, well, one way you could honor me is by enjoying the gift that I gave you, right? We honor God when we enjoy His gifts to His glory. This is one of the primary ways that we can eat and drink and whatever we do, do to the glory of God. James 1 tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God. 1 Timothy 6.17 tells us that God richly provides us with everything good 
to enjoy. One of the primary ways that gifts become God's and we, we, we make idols out of the good things of this earth is that we forget who gave it to us. This, this is the beginning of your life being ordered, that you recognize that your life, every breath, everything you have, your house, a roof over your head, a bed to sleep in, a job, a way to make money, food on the table, clothes on your back, every bit of it is a gift. This is necessary to live in God's world on His terms. And not, not that we grow too attached to this world. We remember that this is not forever and that we were made to live with Him. And at the same time, we recognize that this, gift, that this world, this life is good. It is a gift. And we can glorify Him by enjoying His good gifts with gratitude. Thirdly, God has given us creative power under his authority. Look at Genesis 1, 28. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then again, look at verse 9 in chapter 2. Wait, that's not verse 9. 19, sorry. Um, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. When God gave the command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, he was commissioning them as his representatives, as his vice regents. He's he's saying, I want you to fill the earth with the image of God, with the glory of God. And we see that in this command to go and subdue the earth and have dominion. We see that playing out in Adam and Eve starting families and um, populating the earth. But it's also playing out in the good developments that humans have achieved in medicine and travel and technology and the arts and architecture and sports. This is our divine mandate, or it's part of it at least, to use our creative powers for the discovery and development of the earth's natural resources. When God tells Adam and Eve to subdue the earth, what that tells us is that the earth that was given to them was an unsubdued earth. Um, Author and theologian Joe Rigney puts it this way, it implies that creation has unrealized potential, latent dimensions that lie beneath the surface. Or as another author put it, God has embedded within creation a rich array of hidden potentialities. What does that mean, really? When God made dairy cows, he knew we'd invent cheddar cheese and butter and ice cream. When he made trees, he knew we'd build houses and cities and furniture and baseball bats. The world was given 
to us pregnant with endless hidden potential. And it is God's good design that we discover it. Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. This is what we're called to in the divine mandate. God creates ex nihilo. He creates out of nothing. He speaks and things appear. But that's not how we create, and yet we still create, right? As image bearers of God, we image God when we create, but we don't create ex nihilo. We create with the resources that He has created. And as we do that, we bring glory to God. In other words, God hasn't been shocked by any of the in by any of the things that we have developed throughout human history. He never thought, wow, airplanes. I never knew they were going to come up with that. (laughs) This is what we see Adam beginning to do here in chapter 2 as he is naming creation. This is the beginning of of him carrying out this divine mandate. And here's, here's what I mean. He is giving these animals names that are fitting for them based on how God made them. We see this specifically in how he names Eve when God brings this first woman to Adam. Look at verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Notice that Adam's creative power of naming is subject to the truth that is embedded in the woman through God's design of her. He doesn't come up with a name for her that lies about God's creation of her. He discovers and names what it is in her that glorifies God. Do you see that? And all God-glorifying, dominion-taking follows this rule. We are discovering the unrealized potential embedded in creation and calling it out to the glory of God so that God's glory, in a sense, is increased through our creative activity. The world will tell you that life is about consuming, but that's a lie. The Creator made you in His image, so create. And we do this when we cook, when we take raw materials and we we use our creative powers and we bring them together to make something even better when we build, when we paint, when we sing, when we write, when we clean, when we organize, when we plan, when we invent, when we teach. Brothers and sisters, by the power of the Holy Spirit in you, take dominion to the glory of God. Discover unrealized potential embedded in your home, in your workplace, in your city, and call it out to the glory of God. Finally and fourthly, God designed manhood and womanhood. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now look over in chapter 2 at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then skip down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So in chapter 1, we see that God created both men and women as image bearers on the earth. And in chapter 2, again, we get a closer look at that creative act. The first thing that we should notice about the creation of men and women, male and female, is that men and women are created as equals. They are both created in the image of God. They both bear equally the image of God. The second thing that we should notice is that men and women are not exactly the same. First of all, they were created at different times, the man first, and then after a need is exposed in verse 18, the woman is created out of the man. And Paul points to this order of creation in 1 Timothy 2.13, showing that it is indeed significant. But secondly, we see that men and women don't have the same roles and responsibilities, the doctrine that men and women are created equal but have differing roles is known as complementarianism. And complementarianism states that men and women have different and complementary roles and responsibilities in marriage, in family life, and in the church. Genesis 2 and 3, and then going on through, through the Bible, show us clearly that men and women were created with, as complementary partners for one another. Beginning with this passage, we see godly men taking responsibility for leading and godly women shoring up and adding to their leadership. Right here in this creation narrative, the, woman, the Lord says of the woman, I will make a helper fit for him. The Hebrew word that's translated as fit for can also be translated as corresponding to. If you have an ESV, it'll have a little note at the bottom. A helper corresponding to. It's like um, two pieces of a puzzle. That Those pieces of the puzzle are not exactly the same or they cannot fit together. They are different. But they are different in exactly all of the perfect ways needed for those puzzle pieces to come together, Right? And that's how God made male and female, men and women. We are different in all the right ways, corresponding to each other. There is an obvious need for God to make a counterpart to Adam if they're going to be able to fulfill God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But the design for manhood and womanhood has purpose that extends far beyond mere procreation. Men and their God-given masculinity is necessary for human flourishing, and women and their God-given femininity is necessary for human flourishing. When the world minimizes the differences between men and women or says that men and women are basically the same, 
It is an attack on the glory of God embedded in both men and women. It's an attack on God's glory. God's Word clearly says that the world needs more than just men, and the world needs more than just women. It is not good for man to be alone. Now, we don't have time to do a deep dive into the doctrine of manhood and womanhood, but I want to at least address some basic truth uh, regarding gender and sexuality. Every generation of Christians has had their battle that they've had to fight in the cause of truth, where they've had to stand firm on the truth. And for our generation, it's here in, in this realm of gender and sexuality. Um, so I just want to kind of bring some clarity to the fog for us, okay? By, by giving you four of the, the main lies, the four main lies that the world is telling us right now about gender and sexuality. Number one, um, the world will tell you that who and how you love are irrelevant to questions of morality, or the way that they may put it is love is love. And all that matters, what's, what's implied in that, is all that matters is that you love. But this is a lie. God created the world and determined boundaries and distinctions. And we are reading all about that these last weeks. He created boundaries which must not be crossed or they lead to death. This applies to every area of our lives, including our sexuality. A second lie that the world wants us to believe is that sexual expression is a fundamental right that needs to be expressed or it will cause psychological harm. Anybody ever heard that one? This too is a lie. Look at the life of Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith. He was a single and celibate man, and no one lived more fully more righteously than Jesus. The third lie that our world wants us to believe is that gender is a social construct created by humans and performed in society. And they will say that if it has been constructed, then they would argue that it can and should be deconstructed because these gender constructs, they say, are harmful and oppressive. And the end game is to create a genderless society. This, friends, is an attack on the authority of God who created us in His image as male and female. Our gender is objective truth given to us by God. To deny this reality is to deny God Himself. And then finally... The world wants us to believe that to love our neighbor is to affirm their perceived gender and sexual expression. This one in particular is uh, tricky for, for a lot of Christians, deceptive to a lot of Christians, because they're, they're going to use the language that we use, they, you know, compassion and kindness and love, and we want to be all of those things, right? We want to be compassionate. We want to be kind. We want to be loving. But the problem is that they are twisting those things. And the Bible is very clear that we, the way that we love people is by pointing them to the truth. We are called to speak the truth in love. We're called to correct our opponents with gentleness, 
that perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. How can those that we care about, how can the people that God loves escape from the snare of the devil, break out of the chains of bondage that lies and deception have created over them if we do not speak the truth? I think that the enemy knows that if you can erase gender, or rather, if you can look at the clear truth of our biology and still deny it, then there's nothing that can stop you from ignoring or denying anything else that is undeniably true in our world. I believe this is an attack on reality itself. So what do we do? How can we stand firm? How can we push back this cultural insanity that we now see, this darkness that's spreading across the world? Well, I got three suggestions for you, three simple suggestions. Number one, know and love what God's Word has to say about the beauty of God's design in creating us male and female. That's where I would start. You don't know where to start in all of this? Begin by studying what God's Word has to say about manhood and womanhood, about His design for masculinity and femininity, um, and love what He says about manhood and womanhood. Secondly, embrace the beauty found in God's design for manhood and womanhood. And what I mean is that men, we need to live as godly examples of masculinity in our home, in our church, in our workplaces. And women need to live as godly examples of femininity in your home, your church, and your workplaces. We've, we've, we've come to a place in our world when just to live as a biblical man, a biblical woman, is a witness. It is light in our dark world. Adorn the glory of your God-given gender through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, we need to speak the truth in love, beginning with those closest to us and those that we have influence with. In other words, don't go with the flow of the world in your workplace or your classroom or in your circle of friends. Don't affirm the lies that the enemy is using to destroy people. If every Christian would commit to these three things, it would at the very least be a good place to start in pushing back the cultural insanity around sexuality and gender. However, ultimately nothing detached from the gospel of Jesus Christ can effectively push back the darkness that our sin has caused in this world. Um, the first step to living according to God's good design is being reconciled to your Creator through Jesus Christ. Not, not just us, but those that we know. So, first of all, if, if you're here and you have not been reconciled to God, through Jesus, through what he did for you on the cross, I want to invite you to do that. This is step one. If this life hasn't made sense to you, if it's all felt chaotic and nonsensical, then let me just tell you, 
It very well may be because you don't know God. Even if you've grown up in the church, even if you've grown up with some light, you've grown up with some truth, if you've never submitted your life to him, if you've never turned from your sin and repentance and really trusted him, then you don't yet know him. You know about him, but that's not the same as knowing him. It's not the same as a relationship. Jesus is Lord. And the first step to having a relationship with the Lord, the King of the universe, is submitting your life to him. He says, I have called you friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So I want to ask you to think about this. If you're here today, I think you're here for a reason. I don't think that there are any mistakes. And I believe that God wants every single person before you walk out these doors to know that you have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Just as the first Adam, as we read here, had to be put into a death-like sleep and his side opened up so that the father could form for him a wife, so too the true and better Adam Jesus was put to death and his side pierced with a soldier's spear so that the father could form for him a bride. Who is that bride? It is us, the church. It is every single man, woman, and child who turns from sin and believes the good news that Jesus is Lord. Similar to Adam, Jesus was awakened from death. He rose from the grave And one day, very soon, the Father will present to him his bride in all her glory. This is why Jesus left his Father in heaven, so that he could hold fast to his wife, so that the two could become one. Believers, we are the bride of Christ, purchased with his own blood. Do you believe this? Do you believe this gospel Do you believe that Jesus came to make all things right again? That everything that was broken in the fall, Jesus came to make right. That he paid the penalty for your sin and mine, for our rebellion against this very good God. That he took our sins upon himself on the cross, absorbed God's just wrath for our sin, paid the price in full, declared from the cross, it is finished, was buried, and on the third day he rose from the grave, declaring that all who would turn from their sin and place their trust in him would have eternal life with God, a reconciled relationship with your creator. If you believe it, then turn today. Cry out to him today. Tell him Confess your sins to him. Tell him you want a relationship with him. And you can today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for uh, the gospel on every page of the Bible. Right here, Lord, we see a foreshadowing of the death of your son on the cross. 
to purchase for him a bride, to form for him a bride. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to go to the cross to pay for our sin, to reconcile us to your Father. And Lord, I pray that every single one of us would go from here encouraged that we can indeed live according to your design for the world, that we can live in your world, your way, and and experience incredible blessing in doing so in a life lived with you. God, I pray for anyone in this room that is still unsure, that still has doubts, that's still wrestling. Oh, Lord, draw them to yourself and grant them new life in your son, Jesus. It's in, in his name we pray. Amen.